It's so good to see you all and to sing with you all, to hear your voices. Such a delight to do that today. I only have one complaint. We have got to get better at clapping. <laughs> We're terrible at that. Anyway, that's beside the point. This Thanksgiving weekend, we are meant to pause and be thankful for all our blessings, for our families, our homes, our freedoms, our health, and more, our, our, especially our food, right? <laughs> but I believe that Christians have more to be thankful for than anyone else on earth. Even if things are difficult right now, we have so much to give thanks for. If we're not feeling very thankful this morning, maybe we haven't been paying attention. Like we have recently seen, if you've been with us, we've been in Ephesians, and we've seen from even just the very first chapter of Ephesians, some of our countless blessings in Christ, how we have been chosen and adopted and redeemed and forgiven and sealed and much more. Well, we have a bright future secured for us in Christ, an unthinkable inheritance. Another place in Scripture says that God will certainly give us all things in Christ Jesus. So I wonder, are we thankful for what matters most? Are we even aware of what matters most that we should be thankful for? We have all things in Christ. And yet there's still a tension, right? Because we're human, and we still have needs and anxieties and concerns. Like, what should we do about them? And the short answer is pray. We should pray. Talk to God about them. Like, Paul is not in denial here that we still have needs and sins and pains and struggles. He says elsewhere that he himself has faced plenty and hunger, abundance and need, that he's experienced weaknesses, insults, hardships, calamities. And yet he says in Philippians 4, he tells us, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So, we have lots to be anxious about. Be thankful anyway. We have lots to be thankful about. Pray anyway. Bring your requests to God. Make them known to him. But then we wonder, like, there's this, that, like, we, if God says he's already given us everything, how should we pray then? And what should we pray for now? How should we pray for ourselves, for one another? If we have been guaranteed all things in Christ, what should we be praying for? And in short, like, we ask, how should we pray for people who already have everything? These are all good questions that I think God's Word can address for us today. So if you would, please open up a Bible, physical or digital, to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1. And today I'm going to start by rereading the majestic passage that we've looked at over the last three Sundays. Like, why read the whole passage again? Because as soon as Paul takes a deep breath... 
He begins our passage today with, for this reason. So, what he's about to say is rooted in what he just said. So, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And even though Paul's praise rant finally ends there, he is still celebrating God's salvation. How could he not? These are heart-thrilling, life-altering, earth-shaking realities. And he's just brought God's amazing universal plans down to earth for the Ephesians, saying, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, you believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Like, hallelujah, this is true of you now. This is all true of you. And for this reason, verse 15, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Now, Paul had spent a lot of time in Ephesus, around three years at least, so he had seen a lot of people come to faith in Christ. But now, apparently, he's gotten a report of that their faith has continued, it has flourished, and that so encouraged him. It's like, ever since I heard, I have been thanking God. And these verses give us a first answer about how we should pray now as believers in Christ, that we should express our gratitude or our thanksgiving, especially for God's work in our lives. This is something We can always do every day, no matter what's going on in our lives. We can always thank God for faith and love evident in our lives. We We can and we should always thank God for any faith and love that is evident in our lives. He says, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. So if you have got faith in God, and you've got love for others, never stop marveling at that. Like, this shows 
These are, these are supernatural things. This is evidence that God is working in you. It's evidence that the Father has loved you in eternity past, choosing you as his own. It shows that you've been redeemed and forgiven by the blood of Christ, the Son. And it shows that, that you've received the Spirit, that he guarantees your future. Like in a, in a self-serving, sin-celebrating, self-dependent culture, you're different now. Thank God. Now question. Do you think the Ephesians had super strong faith or perfect love for one another? No. If they did, Paul would never have had to write this letter. But their faith and love was at least noticeable, and that was enough to rejoice over if you do any gardening, anything from elaborate landscaping to beans in a cup for school, <laughs> you'll know a bit about this. Right? When you plant a seed or a bulb in the soil, maybe you're planting bulbs this fall that you expect to see grow next spring. Like When you plant something, what is the, one of the most exciting moments for us to observe? Right? Like, sure, it's great to see flowers bloom where vegetables grow, but don't you love it when you see the plant first emerge from the soil? I, I love that. Look, it's green. <laughs> it's growing. The miracle of life still works. <laughs> no matter how strong or weak their faith, no matter how mature or immature their love, Paul marveled here. Look, there's evidence of new life in you. It's growing. It's miraculous. Praise the Lord. Remember, even the weakest faith in Christ gets the same strong Savior. And even the simplest expressions of love can reflect his infinite love. My follow-up question would be, do we have eyes to see? Do we even notice these things? And we can rejoice when we see them in ourselves. Have you seen God at work in you? Has your heart believed in Jesus? Received the miracle of new life by faith? Even if you, have, even if you wrestle with doubts at times, is there a mustard seed of faith in you? And has your faith been shown in acts of love for other people? Have you been volunteering to, to serve others in love, perhaps on a service team at church? Have you made phone calls to check in on someone you love, you care about? Have you made meals for shut-ins or sick people or new parents? If any of this is true of you, don't take pride in it today. But take gratitude in all of it. Be thankful for it. Thank the Lord that he has changed your heart and your life to increasingly live like this. And then, like Paul, look outside yourself and notice these things in the people around you. 
For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Now, I'm preaching to myself today as a fairly inobservant person. We need to be on the lookout for ways that God is at work in those around us. And this can be hard to do because we tend to be so self-absorbed or prideful. Do we rejoice when we see other people's spiritual growth or gifts? Or do we feel displeasure, maybe even envy, when others thrive spiritually or surpass us? We may have some repenting to do today. May we notice what God is doing in others and not resent it, but rejoice in it. We need to rejoice when when someone takes that first step of faith in following Jesus. We We should recognize when someone is courageously stepping out in their faith from sharing the gospel with an unsaved friend to going on the mission field. We should take note of when someone is suffering and yet still trusting the Lord through it. We should also notice when someone is loving us or others around them, when they sacrifice their time to serve, say in the nursery or music or on tech, when they sacrifice their money to give to someone they hear is in need. And they go out of their way to encourage or pray with someone. No one should be doing these things to be noticed. But we should be far more alert to how God is working through others. And when we notice, we should tell them, both to encourage them and to praise God. Brian Chappell comments, So much of ministering to God's people is simply being ready to see the good and to envision what will be rather than what is in people. People cannot grow in an an environment where only their failings are seen and remembered. Let me give you a couple examples of this. So when my son was baptized this summer, he received a letter in the mail later that week from a senior saint in our church who was shut in at home and watching the service over the live stream. And it said this, What a joy it was to witness your declaration of faith in the Lord Jesus as you were baptized. May you continue to grow in your walk with him. Now, she wasn't even here in person, but she saw the evidence of faith in my son's life, and she wanted to commend that and celebrate with him. Oh, for more encouragement like that across our church. Everyone needs that. Here's one I noticed for myself. Uh, Before the Hindia family arrived here this last week, last Sunday, a number of you all gathered together, giving of your Sunday afternoon to give of your things, to work hard to deliver them, and to outfit and prepare an apartment for this family to move into and settle into as a new home. 
Others of you have committed to, to helping them over the next few months to help them settle in. And one man emailed me after last Sunday and said, you should have seen your church family coming together. I'm so grateful and proud of our church. So am I. But I'm more thankful to God that he's doing this work in and through you. Think about it. You never even met these people before. And yet you loved them. Showed very practical love. This love was also demonstrated by believers down in Texas who sacrificially funded this resettlement to the tune of tens of thousands of dollars. Like, thank the Lord for this. Like, they, only the love of Jesus makes sense of that kind of love. So today, my Thanksgiving challenge for you is to look around and ask, who can I encourage today? Who have I seen God at work in? Where have I seen the evidence of faith in someone else? Where have I noticed Christ-like love? And then let them know. And more importantly, let God know. Like, thank the Lord together over what he's done for us. We've been given every spiritual blessing in Christ. So how then should we pray? We can always pray our gratitude back to the Lord. Always. But, as we saw Philippians 4 put it, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. We still have requests, right? We still have needs. We still need the Lord a lot. So how else should we pray then for ourselves, for our brothers and sisters in Christ? Paul's example helps us out here. In the remainder of chapter 1, we see two major requests. What does he ask for? What does he pray for? What should we be asking God for? Here's the first thing. Okay, we can always ask God for more relational knowledge of him. All right, we can always ask God for more relational knowledge or more experience of him. Look how Paul prays for the Ephesian believers. Starting in verse 16 again, says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Here's his prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Now Paul basically says, I keep praying to God that God would give you God. Verse 17 is special in that all three members of the Trinity are mentioned says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. The Father is called the Father of glory. He is both glorious in himself as well as he's the origin and source of all glory. If he can give all glory, whatever we need, he can provide. And since believers are now united to Christ, his son, God is also our father now. So not only is he able to help us, but he's lovingly inclined to help us. And how does he help us? Most by sending the capital H helper, the Holy Spirit. 
He is the source of all true wisdom, and he reveals God to us. Like This is a very God-centered prayer. God is both the, the recipient of the prayer and the request. I pray that God, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Now, these believers had already received the spirit. So really, Paul was praying for them to receive more of him, more experience of him. More knowledge of him. And he says there, I pray that God gives you the spirit in the knowledge of him. The word Paul uses for knowledge is not the regular Greek word for knowledge. It's a more intense word. It speaks of a a real, deep, thorough, full knowledge. It's a personal knowing. That's why I called it relational knowledge. Like having a relationship with him. There's a a huge difference between knowing about someone and really knowing them, right? For a very superficial example, my favorite baseball player is Mike Trout, who I know a lot of things about, useless things. But I could tell you his hometown, his family members, his skills and talents on the baseball field, the awards he's won, the injuries he's suffered, his statistics. But I have never met Mike Trout in my life. I don't, I have no relational knowledge about him. I don't have a relationship with him, unlike, say, my family members my wife, my kids, my parents, and so on. I know them. So, do you truly know the Lord? Or do you just know about him? Is he your friend, your confidant, your helper, your loving Father. No matter how much we know God, there's always more. And thus, we can always ask for more. So pray for this. And pray that, that you and I would go deeper and deeper in our knowing Him. And after all, how do friendships or relationships grow? We spend time together and talk with one another. It's the same with God. We spend time with him, talk with him, both on our own, with others in community, in his word. We get to know him more these ways. Even if we have all things, we still need more of God. More relational knowledge of him. We also need to more, we need more knowledge of what he's done in us, who we are in him. And that's the third aspect of Paul's prayer that we'll see here, covering the final six verses. And I find this fascinating because Paul could pray for so many different things for the Ephesians, for protection or health or endurance, encouragement, unity, character growth, so much more. But instead, he prays that they would better grasp what they've already been given. He doesn't pray for more salvation, hope, 
riches, greatness, or power. After all, we already have been given all of that in Christ. He prays that believers would better understand and more fully realize our blessings to know the things we already have and thus live in light of them. I put it this way. We can always ask God for more awareness of our glorious position in Christ. can always pray, asking God for more awareness of our glorious position in Christ, who we are now in Christ, what we have. The word Paul uses is enlightenment. Look at verse 18. He's praying that they would, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Now, obviously, hearts don't have eyes. But this isn't talking about the heart in your chest. This is the heart, the, the center of you, the center of your being. And what we see with the eyes of our heads is not the full reality of our lives now. And so, we need the eyes of our hearts to see by faith what God wants us to see. For instance, you can't see Christ's blood redeeming or forgiving you with your eyes. But your heart can see that. Your heart can believe in that, take comfort in that, be saved by that. Or you can't physically see the glorious future God has in store. But you can envision it with your heart and thus greatly anticipate it. So we should pray, Father, enlighten our hearts. Shine a light in us. Let us be more aware. Open our spiritual eyes. Help us really clue in to the glory of what you've done for us. You can pray that right here, right now, in this moment. Pray it to the Lord. And as Paul prays for more awareness, he then lists three blessings of our glorious position in Christ. Look with it. Look, me, look with me at it. Verse 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. So first thing, we need to know the hope of our calling. What hope? What calling? Well, we read about this recently. Back in verse 4 and 5, we read, Even as God chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So God calls us as a father calls his child long before we call on him to save us. We're called out of darkness and out of sin and out of death into light and holiness and life. And thus, we're destined for glory. We're, we're destined to be holy and blameless. We are destined to be his beloved children forever. That's our hope. Now, do you think that you have wrapped your mind around the hope to which God has called you? I haven't either. Therefore, we must pray for more awareness of this. 
If we truly know this hope, it can completely transform how we face life's challenges today. No matter what comes our way, if we have this hope. Secondly, Paul prays that his people would know, halfway through verse 18, that you would know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. We talked about this too. How we who are in Christ are really rich beyond our wildest dreams. How he has already lavished the riches of his grace on us in Christ's blood. But how he also promises us a glorious future, which we glimpse in verse 11 to 14. And as we saw there, it's not only that God has an inheritance for us, God has an inheritance in us. That we are God's own inheritance. And it says here that we would know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. So God's people are God's most prized possession, his pursuit, his passion. It's not that we deserve that at all. Nor is it that God is man-centered at all. Now this is how astounding his grace and love is. That we would become God's riches? We, the saints, are his glorious inheritance? What he's looking forward to? Scholar F.F. Bruce says, Paul prays here that his readers will appreciate the value which God places on them. Appreciate the value. This is crazy value. Or Kent Hughes concludes, think of it. He owns all the heavens and numberless worlds, but we're his treasures. The redeemed are worth more than the universe. We ought to be delirious with this truth. Again, do you think you've grasped the immensity of what that means? I know we haven't. So pray for this. Pray that God's Spirit would enlighten our hearts with this truth. Open our eyes to it. And finally, perhaps most breathtaking of all, Paul prays that they would know, verse 19, that they would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. Now he's just piling up powerful words to describe the, the greatest power he can imagine. Now, question for you. How do we measure power or strength today? In a huge variety of ways, right? Like in physics, we can measure things in watts, joules, volts, amperage, and more. To measure the power of a, a machine or a vehicle, we talk about horsepower. To determine the power of a nation or of a government or a ruler, we could look at all kinds of things. We could consider the land borders or population or election results or military size or economics, GDP, so on. To figure out a person's strength, we might see how much weight they can lift. 
or how many push-ups they can do or how far or fast they can run. Now notice, every single one of these things can be measured. But we don't have any category for how powerful God is. Can't even compute it. It says, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? Other versions call it God's incomparable or boundless greatness of power. We literally cannot measure how much power God has. We can witness it, we can experience it, but we cannot quantify it or contain it. But God's power isn't just unfathomably great, it's directed somewhere. It says, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? Now, toward us. That's like saying when you tow a trailer, your vehicle's power is toward the trailer. Or when I, like, when I pick up one of my kids, my strength is toward them. This is where the energy is directed. It's where the, what the power is doing. So to say God's immeasurable power is toward us means that that's how much he's working on us. That's how much power we have at our spiritual fingertips. Not our own, but God's. And that tells us exactly why nothing is impossible with God. There is no sin that cannot be forgiven or conquered. There is no part of God's will that we cannot now follow. There's no trial that cannot be endured. There's no earthly or hostile power that cannot be overcome. There's no situation in life that cannot be transformed. There's no person who is beyond redemption, beyond hope. All because God's limitless power is toward us, for us, empowering us. As the message exclaims, oh, the utter extravagance of his work in us who trust him. Endless energy, boundless strength. We just don't realize this. We don't see this. And thus we must pray for this. May God's spirit open our eyes to just how immense God's power is toward us. How do we know how powerful it can be? Look again. It says, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places? So the same power that works in us now is the power that raised Jesus from the dead. Have you ever seen anything else do that? All the marvels of modern medicine cannot do that. Doctors work hard to prevent death because they can't do anything to reverse it. Even the strongest people die. Like, political power can't stop death. Money can't buy you a resurrection. 
There is no power on earth that can raise the dead. But God reversed death. His power raised a very dead man up from the grave. Kent Hughes says, This stupendous power changes us from children of hell to children of God and gives us practical victory over sin in our lives. We will see it visibly someday in the resurrection of our bodies, for no created power in the universe can do that. Only through the greatness of his power, his great might, is it possible. Yet this same power is operating in and for those of us who believe right now. Paul would ask, do you see it? Do you see it? By the way, if you have not believed in Jesus and been saved by him, this is your only hope. Death and hell are our rightful destiny unless Jesus takes them for us. And that's what we believe he did. That Jesus died in our place, forgiving our sins, and then he came back to life to offer us new and eternal life with him. And as it shows here, to give us a life-transforming power now. I hope you see this. I hope you choose to believe, to trust in Jesus' power to save you today. God's power didn't just raise Jesus from the dead, as if that wasn't enough. He also exalted Jesus to glory. It says that he worked, this is his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Now, Raise your hand if you can take a human being, ascend them into heaven, and then seat them, place them on the throne of heaven. And this is kind of beyond our comprehension. We wouldn't even know where to start. Like, we could at least try to raise someone from the dead and fail miserably. But no one could even attempt something on this scale. Enthroning Christ far above all rule, authority, power, dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He lives and he reigns. Put it this way. Jesus raised is power displayed in the past. Jesus reigning is power wielded today and forever. Echoing both Psalm 8 and Psalm 110, Paul then says in verse 22, and he put all things under his feet. So there's not a person or a nation or a company on earth, not even Google or Amazon, that could even come close to the amount of power Jesus holds right now. Neither are there any spiritual forces or powers out there that can rival him. Not only are all other powers inferior to him, they are also now subject to him. Jesus reigns supreme. And he says Jesus' name will never be surpassed. This is where Christ is now. And don't forget, brother or sister, we're united with him. That's really the reality that Paul wants to wake us up to. 
our glorious position in Christ. Everything else in life pales if this is true. Every physical, emotional, or relational need we still feel can be transformed if we have this kind of hope, this kind of riches, this kind of power, because Christ gives this hope, claims these riches, and lends this power, then it makes sense that our greatest need that we need to pray for is to wake up. All these things are ours in Christ. God, open the eyes of our hearts to this. We have nothing to worry about and everything to be thankful for. In the final lines of this passage, Paul adds one more thought, which may sound confusing to you, but this is really where these grand cosmic truths intersect with our lives now, really our lowly church here and now. It says this, And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So clearly, Christ is the head, the authority, the ruler over the church. And this only makes sense, right? If he rules over everything, that obviously includes us. But I am not the boss here. Here at Calvary, our elders are not in charge here. Jesus is over all of us. However, did you notice it says that God gave him to the church? That's what it says. God gave him to the church. So he rules us, but it's also for us. He reigns over everything for the benefit of his people. As Brian Chappell says, the universe is being constrained in its course, bent in new directions for the good of the bride of Christ. As much as our perceptions may seem to deny this truth, the battles that rage, the leaders that rise, the events that occur, do not thwart his agenda. History inexorably marches forward toward the triumph of the church of Jesus Christ. He is using all things, including the tragedies of a fallen world, to shape and reshape the world for her sake. The whole creation is being conformed to purposes that serve the glory of Christ's church. Is that not dumbfounding? Thank God. Verse 23 says, We're his body now, which is a key image that Paul will return to in Ephesians. But question, can a head be separated from a body? Well, yes but then everything dies. (laughs) But maybe better, can a body live without a head? Or a head without a body? No, they are inseparable. And that is how we are now in Christ. We're so associated with him and united to him that we're part of the same body. And there is an organic, vital, living connection between Christ and us. And finally, Paul says, he's given him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Who fills all in all? God. He's present everywhere. He's working everywhere. But this actually says that the church is the fullness of him. 
What does that mean? I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean we complete Christ. It does mean that Christ completes us and fills us and uses us for his glory. The message paraphrase is helpful again here. It says, the church you see is not peripheral to the world. The world is peripheral to the church. The church is Christ's body in which he speaks and acts by which he fills everything with his presence. You get it yet? Like this isn't Paul just boasting about how great the church is. No, this is Paul marveling at how great God's grace to the church is. We're this central to his plans. We're this central to his heart. Wow. The church is nothing without Christ. But with him, he changes the world through his body. He's working in the world for us, and he's working through us for the world. Despite all our weaknesses and failures and challenges, the church is God's chosen instrument to fill the earth with his glory. This is one of the most compelling reasons I think you'll hear for belonging to the church, for worshiping and gathering together regularly, for serving in or through the church, not just for your personal benefit, but for the benefit of everyone and everything. God is filling the church and using the church to transform creation. And his plans and purposes for us are glorious. If only we had eyes to see. Jared Wilson says that prayer is essentially acknowledged helplessness. We ask God for his glory, for his help, for his will, and for his favor, because we know we are powerless to make things happen ourselves. So you are not the only helpless one here. You hear all these grand truths and you feel pretty small. You're not the only helpless one. So is your neighbor, person sitting next to you. So is your friend, your family member. So is your pastor. We may be helpless on our own. And yet we have resurrection power through Jesus Christ. So, you pray with me? If the goal of this passage was not to drive us to our knees, I don't know what it is. We should fall to our knees in awestruck gratitude. We have everything in Christ. And we should fall to our knees in total dependence. We are nothing without him. So we're going to put this passage up on the screen. And I'm going to slowly paraphrase it for us as my sincere prayer for you, for us as a church. And as I pray, I would ask you to please pray along with me. Make it your own prayer for us and for the, the people that are around you. Okay, so let's pray this together. 
Heavenly Father, we have heard of faith, we have seen love, that you are working in us. So we give thanks to you for all that you are doing. May we remember each other in our prayers. We pray that you, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give us the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, of you. Having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, please enlighten our hearts, God, that we may know what is the hope to which you've called us. What are the riches of your glorious inheritance in us? And that we would know what is the immeasurable greatness of your power toward us who believe. According to the working of your great might, that you worked in Christ when you raised him from the dead and seated him at, the, at your right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. You've put all things under Christ's feet. You gave him his head over all things to us. We're your body, Christ's body, the fullness of you who fills all in all. Lord, we thank you. We praise you. May we be filled with gratitude today. May we know you more. May you open